0: getting to wear a clergy collar, one of these white tab collars, is a strange and kind of awkward privilege. Uh, When you wear something like this, people make all sorts of expectations of you. I I like to wear this because, frankly, it forces me to act like a Christian. You know, if I go to the grocery store and someone cuts in front of me in line and I'm wearing this, I have to say, well, yes, of course you may go right ahead. Someone cuts me off in the parking lot. I, I can't I can't flip the bird. I have to say, well, the, the love of Christ be with you. You know, you, you got to act like a Christian when you wear something like this because you know everyone's watching you. So there are times where I, I enjoy wearing this. Sometimes if you go to the hospital and you need to visit someone, it, people will just kind of understand why you're there and let you get to where you need to be. When you're, when you're doing a wedding or a funeral and there's a lot of people who don't know who you are, they'll listen to you when you dress like this. But there are times where you don't want to wear something like this. You know, if you're just going to have you know a coffee and you're just sitting there and you want to read a book and if you're sitting there wearing this everyone comes and talks to you and just about most of the people they come up and they say father it's been a long time since i've gone to confession and i always say well in the name of jesus christ you're forgiven get leave me alone you know a friend of mine was wearing a collar a number of years ago and he was at starbucks He had a funeral going on later that day. He was overwhelmed. He was trying to get his sermon finished. And so he was sitting in a Starbucks wearing his clergy collar. He was writing on his computer. And at some point in the time he was there, he kind of felt like all of the eyes in the Starbucks were looking at him. And so he looked away from his computer and sort of scanned the Starbucks. And he saw all these well-meaning people, you know, enjoying their coffee, having a good time. But in the corner, there was a homeless man. And he had been sitting there for a few minutes. And he had a little cardboard sign that said hungry please help and so jason <clears> this <throat> pastor he's just working on his computer and he, he looks around at everyone and everyone's looking at him because they're all seeing this man in the corner and they think well we don't have to do anything because a man of the cloth is in our presence now jason is a stubborn man he didn't he didn't want to have to do anything he wants to get his sermon done so he can go do the funeral but the more he tries to write the more he realizes everyone's watching him And so reluctantly, he closes his computer, he goes up to the counter, he buys a coffee and one of those microwavable sandwiches they have at Starbucks, and he goes over to the table with the homeless man, and he puts it down, and then just kind of says, what's your name? And the homeless man said, Jesus. (laughs) He said, of course your name is Jesus. How can I pray for you? And so he sat down with him and spent the next hour sitting with him and learning about his life, figuring out what had happened to him that led him to be there. And Jason loves to tell this story because even as a, a pastor, he said, I never would have done it had I not felt so guilty. You know, people give for all kinds of reasons. Sometimes people give out of joy because they've received so much they want to be a blessing to other people. Sometimes people give because they've been taught to give and they don't really know any different. A lot of times people give because of guilt. Now, guilt, you know, can only run so far. If you just, if someone like me says, oh, if I stand up here and I just try to make you feel bad week after week and try to get you to put money in the plate because I want you to feel bad, the plates are going to get lighter and lighter every week. It doesn't work like that. But I know for my friend Jason, a pastor, had he not felt guilty, had he not been moved... By that feeling, he never would have met Jesus in his midst. Now, Scripture Day comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. They came to Jericho. As he and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the roadside. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout out and say, "'Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me.' Many sternly ordered him to be quiet." But he cried even more loudly, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stood still and said, Call him here. And they called the blind man, and they said to him, Take heart, he, get up, he's calling you. So throwing off his cloak, he sprang up, came to Jesus, and Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, My teacher, let me see again. And Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately, he regained his sight and followed him on the way. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It was my first Sunday in Durham, North Carolina, and the next day I was going to be starting in seminary at Duke University, but because it was Sunday and I was going to seminary the next day, I thought I should probably go to church on a Sunday morning. But having been new in town and not knowing where to go, I did what any millennial would do. I Googled nearby United Methodist Church. I looked through about six websites. I picked the one that was the least bad and I decided to go there for worship. So I pulled into the parking lot. I walked up to these big front steps leading through these big red doors. I walked into the narthex and immediately noticed something strange. It was empty i mean maybe that's not so strange in a church but there was no one in the narthex no usher no greeter there were no bulletins anywhere i thought okay maybe maybe i got the worship time wrong maybe i'm just a little early so i walked through the, the doors from the narthex sitting into the sanctuary and it got even worse because there was no one in the sanctuary the lights weren't even on now in a moment two things happened to me one i thought i am an idiot I picked the wrong worship time. Like, or maybe it's Saturday and I'm just so discombobulated. And then I thought maybe the rapture happened and I got left behind and Jesus took all the good ones already. So I just stood there awkwardly in this empty sanctuary on a Sunday morning thinking, what am I gonna do? I mean, what if someone sees me leave now and they're like, You're just so awkward and uncomfortable and I paced up and down the center aisle thinking, like what am I supposed to do? And then through one of the doors by the altar, a very small old man came through and he saw me walking and he said, you must be new. We're worshiping in the basement. Follow me. Now at that point, I couldn't just turn around and leave. I mean, I had to follow the man. So he led me through this, you know, cavernous hallway. We went through the bowels of the church, just kind of going left. I had no idea we passed Sunday school rooms that had been long forgotten. We went by a fellowship hall that had deflated basketballs tucked away in a corner, and finally we found the social hall. And we walked in. There were a series of folding chairs set up in a sort of semicircle, and there was a little a little podium and a, a, a piano that was leaning to one side and a group of christians and because i had been upstairs pacing for so long i was a little bit late to the service so when i walked in they were already singing take my voice and let me sing always only for my king take my lips and let them be Filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my gold. Not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use. Every power as thou shalt choose. We settled in for worship. I picked my own folding chair away from everywhere else. Everybody else. Scripture was read. Prayers were offered. The preacher stood up. and He talked to us about stewardship. About the value of Christian generosity, about how we have to give back what God has given to us, the imperative that, friends, we need to raise funds for the air conditioning, or we're going to be worshiping down this basement until Jesus comes back. Amen? I mean, we went through this whole thing, and after the benediction was shared, we were invited to the other side of the social hall where there were lemonade and cookies, stale cookies and old lemonade, out on a table to be consumed. The preacher promptly pulled me aside. I was 23, 22 years old. I I looked like a fish out of water. He pulled me aside and he said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that this is your first Sunday. I don't want you to think that it's like this every week. I don't want you to think that church is only about asking people to serve. I'm sure I said something to try to make him feel better, but then that same old man who I followed through the church, he came up and he said, don't listen to the preacher. Don't listen to a thing he says. This is what church should be like every week. Giving is what it means to be a disciple. I went to that church every Sunday for three years. They taught me what it means to give. Because it wasn't just about replacing the air conditioning unit. Yes, they needed to do that, but they needed to replace the air conditioning so they could have the after-school children's program where the kids would come and get fed and get to work on their homework. They needed the air conditioning so that the homeless population could come in and get lunch every single day. Every time, they, it wasn't just about the thing, it was about the whole thing. I went there every week because they taught me that being a disciple is the same thing as being a giver. A blind beggar was sitting by the roadside. And what do you think about that? I mean, that's how Mark starts this story. A blind beggar was sitting by the roadside. In this one sentence, we get the whole truth about this person and the whole truth about us because this is what life can do. Life can be everything we want it to be. We might have what we think is the right job or the right spouse, the right child, the right church, the right whatever. And then usually, without warning, life comes at us pretty fast and we find ourselves sitting by the roadside of life we get that wayward diagnosis or we lose a job or we have an argument that leads to a fight that leads to words being said that we cannot unsay on and on life comes and it gets us to blind Bartimaeus is sitting by the roadside that's what they called him named by what he couldn't do The only thing others could see about him was that he couldn't, forgotten, or worse, tossed aside. I mean, if he disappeared, maybe one person would notice, but life would continue on its merry way, whether Bartimaeus did or not. And life looks different from the roadside. It looks different from the hospital bed. It looks different from behind bars. It looks different from when you're living paycheck to paycheck. There is nothing that one can do from the roadside of life except except that this is your fate. That this is what life will now be. And yet Bartimaeus in his blindness sees the truth. He understands, like others in his position do, what we who feel like we are on top of the world, what we miss, that life is cruel. Sometimes we get a taste of it. We go to visit somebody when they're in the hospital or we sit in these pews for a funeral or we hear about someone we know and love and something terrible has happened to them, but then we do whatever we can to return to the comforts of our lives as soon as we possibly can. Because we all live under the power of denial The life is just going to keep going the way we want it to, despite all of the evidence to the contrary. That's why Ash Wednesday is so important. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. We need to be reminded of that truth because a lot of us think that we can make it out of this life alive. But then Bartimaeus is sitting by the roadside, and another one appears on the scene. This is another person who, like Bartimaeus, is about to be pushed by the world to the side of the road of life. He's about to be thrown out among the dead. He has friends. They follow him, and yet they're idiots. They argue about greatness, power, prestige, and in the end, they will all abandon him to the cross. So what happens between Bartimaeus and Jesus Bartimaeus is at the bottom of life. Literally, he's in Jericho. It's 900 feet below sea level. And he's also at the bottom of life because he's a blind beggar sitting by the roadside. He has no hope in the world. And yet the hope of the world happens to walk by him that day. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The crowds, they beckon this beggar to shut his mouth. Can't he see? The Messiah has better things to do. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the Lord stands still. Calls out to the beggar. What do you want me to do for you? He asks. It's the same question that he asked the Thunder Brothers. We talked about this last week. He said, what do you want me to do? Brother Zebedee. And they said, Lord, make us great. Give us power. We want cabinet positions in the kingdom of God. Do you know what Bartimaeus asks for? Have mercy on me. Let me see again. And Jesus says, go. Your faith has made you well. Notice Jesus heals Bartimaeus. He reverses the misfortunes of the world. He orders him to go home. Go live the life that you didn't get to have, Bartimaeus. But Bartimaeus didn't do it. I mean, Think about that. You, you, you've been given the one thing you want. You can go and get everything, but he doesn't. Because if Bartimaeus had gone back to a normal life, we wouldn't be talking about him today. His life changed, but he didn't choose to go back Scripture says he followed Jesus on the way. Jesus is in the business of transformation, of taking us from where we are to where we can be. That's what church is all about. It's, It's not just singing a few songs and having a few lofty thoughts and a few warm fuzzies to make ourselves feel better until we come back next week. We do all of this because it changes us. You know, for what it's worth, pun intended, for what it's worth... The Bible talks about money more than any topic except for love. The Bible talks about money more than any other topic except for love, which, of course, are related to each other. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. I heard someone say that one time. Following Jesus on the way is all about coming to grips with a new reality in which the giving of ourselves is the only way we know how to live because that's exactly what Jesus did and does for us. How we give, whether it's our time or our talents or our ties, they connect with how we and others get to have little slices of heaven here on earth right now. Or to use the language of scripture today, they give us opportunities to have our eyes opened to the truth in our midst. Now, I've only been here a few months and yet in the short time I've been here, I've seen the transformative ministry of God through our church. We welcomed gobs of kid kids into our church for Vacation Bible School this year. My kid keeps singing about the train of glory. I need him to learn other songs. (laughs) I mean, Vacation Bible, we, we opened up our doors and we brought kids and we taught them about discipleship. We taught them about Jesus. We encouraged them to get school supplies so that we could bring them all together to show them the power of what it means when we work together to accomplish something that we never could on our own. We took our youth from our church and we sent them far away to the distant outstretched reaches of roanoke virginia for a hometown mission trip they got to live out their faith by loving their literal neighbors we restarted all of our sunday school classes all of our small groups in which through the powerful work of study we've grown in Christ likeness. we've brought back our different music offerings from the praise band here at the early service to the bells that are going to be at our 11 o'clock service to our kid choirs we've had Celebrate recovery on Wednesday nights, a beacon of hope to people who feel no hope in the world again and again. All of these things we do, they're only possible because of our giving. The giving of our time, the giving of our talents, and the giving of our tithes. Generosity, it changes us. Literally, physiologically. When, when you give, you release endorphins. That's why on Christmas it's always more fun to see people open the presents you got for them than it is to open your own. Our bodies, they react when we're generous. But it's not just about the short term, it's also about the long term. Because our giving now makes things possible for a future we cannot even imagine. So because I've only been here for a few months, I think I've now finally been in every room in our church. I I don't know if you know, this is a big building. It kind of just goes and goes and goes. There's closets and hallways and rooms. It's a big building. Well, a couple weeks ago, I found a room for the first time. It's called our history room. Did you all know we have a history room? It's kind of tucked away down in the basement. There's this giant quilt hanging on the wall with images of the history of Methodism. We have pictures of the church, over 100 years of our history. We we have all these detailed records. It's an incredible room. So this week, we got a knock on the door from a woman. And she said, I'd like to spend some time in the history room. I said, well, thanks be to God. I know where that is. Let me show you. (laughs) I'm aware of this room in our building. She grew up in this church. She was baptized in this church. She was married in this church. And she moved away. And it's the first time she's been back in almost 30 years. She wanted to go to the history room. Because she wanted to look through our old ledgers. And see if she could find her parents' names written down for attending on a Sunday. She wanted to see if she could find her grandparents' names. She wanted to look through old pictures to see who she remembered and who she recognized. I I spent... 30 minutes with her in the room, looking through all of this information. After she left, I I stayed in the room, and I was just kind of bowled over with emotions. A hundred years ago, a hundred years ago, people who had no knowledge that we would be here a hundred years later took steps in faith and said, we're starting a church. The world is filled with bad news. We want good news. We're starting a church. And so they did. They gave they gave their time, they gave their talents, they gave their tithes so that all of us could be here now. For a hundred years, Christians like us have been gathering like this to proclaim the gospel and to respond to it by giving of ourselves. And that's what the church is caught up with today. That's our mission. We plant seeds with our time, with our talents, with our tithes so they might bear fruit in ways we can't even imagine. Because Jesus' great gift makes great gift givers of us all. What we do as a church is nothing short of these eye-opening endeavors in which we are given opportunity after opportunity to be blessings for others because we have been so blessed. We might not like to admit it, but all of us are a little like Bartimaeus. Life has knocked us down at one point or another. We've fate the weight of the world... Come crashing down upon our shoulders. We've felt abandoned to frightening fates in the ditches of life. And then Jesus comes to us in the ditch. Meets us at the bottom. In our sins, in our shortcomings, the great gift giver comes to set us free. He opens our eyes to the way and the life and the truth. Go, he says. Go, your faith has made you well. What happens next? is up to us. So we offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Would you all please pray with me? Lord, we give you thanks for the great gifts you've given to us, for our friends, our families, our lives, our vocations. For this church, for the many who came and planted seeds hoping that one day they might bear fruit in us, help us to be courageous in our discipleship, O Lord, that we might respond to all of the good gifts you've given by becoming gift-givers ourselves, by making our time available to others, by using our talents to bring about your kingdom of course, by using our tithes and our offerings to bear fruit here, now, and also in a future we cannot yet imagine. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to do this good work. Make us gift givers like you. And all God's people say, Amen.